you can, there's a lot of ways you can research your own life. I kept diaries and journals. I reread every email I had sent from like whatever year to whatever. And it was extremely, extremely um, informative because there were things that I thought I knew and understood or ideas and attitudes that I had when I went back in time and realized, oh no. You know, I, you know, the resist, like certain places where I maybe felt like I might've had less agency about choosing to get married. When I look back on my old emails, I was like, no, I was all into this. Welcome to Voices of Santa Clara. Having a good idea doesn't get stuff. And if we'd hit those, there would have been an explosion. We would have died, obviously. Scholarship should cultivate the virtues. Worry more about, am I searching for what I should be doing next in the world? Hey everyone, happy 2020 and welcome to the Voices of Santa Clara podcast. I'm your host, Gavin Cosgrave. For the first episode of the year, we're going to do something a little different and I'm going to publish an interview that happened a couple months ago at Santa Clara with Santa Clara alumni and author Huda Al-Marashi. Huda published the book First Comes Marriage, My Not-So-Typical American Love Story, in November of 2018, and the book has done really well since then. I'll read a little bit of the bio to give you some background on the book. A candid, heartfelt love story set in contemporary California that challenges the idea of what it means to be American, liberated, and in love. When Huda meets Hadi, the boy she will ultimately marry, she is six years old. Both are American-born children of Iraqi immigrants who grew up at opposite ends of California. Hadi considers Huda his childhood sweetheart, the first and only girl he's ever loved. But Huda needs proof that she is more than just the girl Hadi's mother has chosen for her son. She wants what many other American girls have, the entertainment culture's almost singular tale of chance meetings, defying the odds, and falling in love. She wants stolen kisses, romantic dates, and a surprise proposal. As long as she has a grand love story, Huda believes no one will question if her marriage has been arranged. But when Huda and Hadi's conservative Muslim families forbid them to go out alone before their wedding, Huda must navigate her way through the despair and unmet expectations and dashed happily ever after ideals. Eventually, she comes to understand the toll of straddling two cultures in a marriage and the importance of reconciling what you dreamed of with the life you eventually live. Tender, honest, and irresistibly compelling, First Comes Marriage is the first Muslim-American memoir dedicated to the themes of love and sexuality. First Comes Marriage is an almost unbearably humanizing tale that tucks into our hearts and lingers in our imagination, while also challenging long-standing taboos within the Muslim community and the romantic stereotypes we unknowingly carry within us that sabotage some of our best chances of finding true love. So Huda came to Santa Clara and visited the Santa Clara Review, which is the poetry organization on campus, and did a session with the Review staff, where she both provided a presentation on her process of writing the memoir, and then also answered questions from the writers in the room. 
Here's just a taste of a few of the themes that Huda is going to cover in this episode. She'll talk about how she got started writing, which is an improbable story, uh, how she decided where to enter the story and start the book, her process of querying to different agents, uh, her process of revising and what that looked like, how she found her desire line and what that means, the importance of uh, showing versus telling and when you sometimes need to tell, how she dealt with negative feedback, both from uh, the publishing industry and from her own family, uh, how to research your life. And she answers questions on whether the process of writing the book was cathartic or therapeutic. So these are just a few of the takeaways that I think whether or not you personally want to write a memoir, you'll find Huda's process fascinating. Uh, I certainly did, and I've enjoyed listening to it several times since the live event. So here we go. Enjoy. I didn't start uh, seriously in the creative writing world until after I became a mom and I had my first kid and I was at home with him just kind of feeling this like tug. I wish, I wish, this is something I wish I could do. Can I really do this? It seems so silly to set aside, um, you know, time out of the day to just try to do this thing. I have no idea if it's going to ever become anything or go anywhere. And so like the very, very courageous thing first step that I had to do was just to even let myself write in a journal and I found this little thing of my, me asking myself will I ever be able to give this the time and attention writing requires even if it means nothing's ever going to come of it and I was just asking myself is it okay you know to give this thing that may not go anywhere some space before my second child was born I worked up the courage to ask my husband to give me a one-day writing class. We were living in New York at the time, and there's this uh, organization called Gotham Writers, mm. and they do these one-day writing workshops. And I said, you know, for my birthday, would you just sign me up for this one-day memoir writing class? And I was just learning the very, very basic rudimentary things about story and setting up a scene because I had been very immersed in this academic world and academic writing. The one thing I did find space to do, though, even when I had these two little kids running around me, is I did this thing where I felt like I was just kind of harvesting memories and I would take these little index cards and any time I'd have a memory that I thought could be a scene later, I would just jot it down. And, and then later when somebody was napping or I could find a few moments to myself, I'd have the card to jog my memory and then I would build a scene around it and flesh it out. You never know when to, where to enter the story. Trying to figure out where to enter is super tough. And you'll, so you'll wind up with many, many different drafts that start in a lot of different places because you're trying to find that sweet spot that leads you down further instead of leads you to kind of a dead end. So even in these drawer manuscripts, I had several different uh, openings. In the early drafts, I was thinking of it through this lens, like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm writing about being a young girl who knows that she's only going to get a chance to have one love story. And this is the only love story she'll ever have. And so I started the book talking about one of my very first setups where I could tell a boy's family had come to their house, my house to see me. I spent, you know, maybe a good, I don't know, six months. We're writing through this take. And then that didn't go anywhere. And I realized, okay, no, I need to start back further in time. And I thought, I'm gonna write, start it with this scene where my mom is telling me like I would misbehave and she tells me, 
if you don't if you don't behave better, no one's going to want to marry you. And I thought, because that was like a very formative moment, this idea that marriage was such a big part of my childhood and my upbringing, that that's how we got grounded was essentially being threatened that no one was ever going to want to marry you. And I spent a good amount of time writing through this, this take. Then I thought, no, let me start back with this whole Mexico business. Let me start at the end and we'll flash forward and i spent another good amount of months i don't know maybe even a good year writing these different openings i have us when we arrived in mexico i have us in a kentucky fried chicken in mexico all these scenes did eventually make it into the book but at some point they were my opening pages then then i thought oh no i'm trying too hard in Scene. What I need to do is to start the book from a place of telling something more voice driven. So we had this uh, whole um, take on things. And, you know, you'll see that there's little elements that actually did show up in the final book. So nothing winds up in the trash. You know, it's just where it's eventually going to show up. It takes a long time to figure out. And... um, yeah, yeah. And then I thought I'm going to do a prologue. We had this grounding moment where my future husband, when he, we were just kids, and he, and he, there was the scene that is it's still in the opening chapter now where we met, um, we were having a family picnic, and he kind of pretend married my little sister. And so... I wrote that as a prologue. This seemed to be working as a prologue. That's feedback, workshopping it with my friends. I was getting really positive feedback on that. And I thought, okay, I'm going to work with this. This stayed as my opening for a super long time. This this is where I thought I had made it. I had my finished draft. And this is kind of the mess that it looked like. You know, all these starts. And you can see, like, we're going, we've got from 2011 all the way through 2017, trying all of these different entry points, different takes on things. This was something that was kind of like a hard thing for me to learn was the balance between show, don't tell, because you get told a lot, show, don't tell, show, don't tell, show, don't tell, but you need telling, you know, uh, it, it can create too much of this like scene upon scene upon scene upon scene. Telling is where the pace moves faster. That's where the reader gets to breathe a little bit and we can move through time quicker. And with this prologue version of the manuscript, I started querying. And this was in 2013, I started sending things out. And this is what I would recommend doing too. You get yourself a little spreadsheet and you mark the date that you sent it out, who you sent it to, so you can kind of keep track. You get send out, I would do three to five at a time and you get no's and you send three to five more out. And it's just like the no is the homework that it's time to send out another batch. 
and it's interesting. My agency now is Carol Mann Agency, but they did tell me no in 2013. Mm-hmm. And I tried a different agent there too. That's the other hard part is when you look at these agency websites is trying to figure out which one are you going to try. One of the agents in here liked what she saw and she said, oh, you know, your opening pages are some of the most striking I've seen in a long time. I'd be really interested in seeing this again, but it's just too long. Um, And she recommended that I work with a, a, a certain developmental editor. I went back and forth about whether or not I was going to hire this person and bring on the extra person. And then I kind of did this cost analysis and I thought, well, you know, I'll go to a conference and I'll spend, you know, like $1,200 and I'll workshop 10 pages at the conference. Why don't I just go ahead and just give it to one person and get somebody who's going to read this manuscript from A to Z. The other good part of this early querying is in the process. So I had her interest waiting for a resubmit. And in this process of early querying, I got a lot of no's, but I got, I had about five people who said they would look at a revision. And that's how you know when it's time to really listen to your no's and rewrite. If you've got more than one telling you, you know, it's too long or it's too this or it's too that, Okay, it's like, okay, let, let me let me listen. <laughs> so we sent it to the, that developmental editor. I thought she was going to come back and show me exactly where I needed to cut. And I was almost a little bit disappointed. Like, I spent all this money and you have this, this is it. You're just telling me <laughs> that basically, you know, it's the most basic writing advice, right? That for some reason we can never hear is, you know, you need a narrative arc. And, and you, we all think that we have a narrative arc. Mm. We all think we're, what we're doing is making sense on the page. And yet somehow we're not, you know, somehow we're not getting there. (laughs) And she said, you need to be able to say it in one sentence. What does your character want? Like, you're just doing too many things. Like, how many classes have I been to where it's like, okay, what does the character want? I thought I knew, you know, but it, it wasn't true. Like when she asked me and really put me on the spot, I had not worked it out into one line. And then what I realized is I had this manuscript that was just trying to be and do a lot of things. I sat down and scribbled in my notebook, scribbled in my journal. And what I realized is what my character really wanted was this American love story that also followed Muslim rules. I think what I was trying to do before was do the bicultural love story, right? That was the lens, the other lens I was going to look at. And so I had scenes that were a little bit all over the place. This next revision I embarked on took me a year and a half to just move from 120,000 words, which I had no business querying at that length (laughs) in the first place. So if you're there, don't do what I did um, to get it down to 90,000 words, which is the sweet spot. You want to be around 80 to 90,000 words for a first book. What I had to do was map out my own book outline every single scene and ask myself, was it returning to that desire line? Mm. Then I had to reorient and tweak each scene so that its heartbeat somehow came back to that desire line. Sometimes I had a scene that fit in the book, but the heartbeat of it, the emotional truth, the little nugget you were supposed to take away 
was saying something else. It might have been saying something about my relationship with my mom, who's also in the scene, or my relationship with my dad. And what I realized in this revision was that that was not okay. That was what was making the story feel disjointed. So what I would do, what I was doing in the outline is asking myself, what are, what is the facts on the ground? What is the action that we've seen in the scene? And now how am I going to gear it so that the nugget go, follows the desire line? So then I finished. Okay, I did this. Took me a year and a half. I have to start querying again. This was an example of my query. And what I would do is in my opening lines, I would Google something about them and make it slightly personal. You know, I found you through your participation in this, but I've come to admire your work in your interviews. I loved your shout out to my friend, uh, this author here. And I hope you're going to be interested in my manuscript. And I start giving him my summary. And then I did throw in like I and my manuscript was professionally edited. It's ready, you know, so they know it's been had another pass on it. And, you know, I did get a request from him, but he came back and said, uh, memoirs are really tough sell right now. And this is what I heard again and again and again and again. Uh, These pages are really good. It's very interesting. Memoirs are really tough sell. All those five agents that I had waiting for me one by one started to drop out. And one of them said this would have to be the next Angela's Ashes for me to take on another memoir. (laughs) So I gave up for a little while. I took that old, uh, almost Iraqi document and I thought, well, maybe I could turn this into a YA book or something. And I stopped querying for a little while. It's like, this is it. I just can't. I've tried so hard. And this just happens. Like sometimes you just have to step back from everything. And then I don't know what happened that inspired me to say, okay, let me give it a go one more time. And I decided to go back to the old manuscript to try querying another set of agents. And I finally found in my agent through the slush. Like I didn't have a connection to her from the conference. She wasn't waiting for it because she'd seen some of my previous work. It's the same query letter that you saw before. This time I couldn't even find something online <laughs> to make it personal. So I used my class, my standard hook where I just said something a little bit about the book. And then I had noted on her website, the certain authors that she liked that I also write liked. So that was my only little personal throw in in the end. And she asked, um, for my pages and read very quickly and made me an offer. And I still had my manuscript out with one other agent that I was able to follow up with and then say, I have an offer on the table. This is the thing that will happen too, is your agent, your editors also are living their real life, you know, and her, she'd been, she had something going on in her personal life. And she said, I can't read. I can't read by the time you need to get back to her. So I wish you the best of luck. And so I ended up signing with, um, with, with my current agent and I revised for her one time. Sometimes an agent will have, I had a, my, a, my closest, dearest writing friend who's just now sold her book, revised with her agent for two years before they went out on submission. We did one round of revisions. And so you think this is like your happily ever after, right? It's done, you finally sold your book. 
But this is really where the trouble just begins. <laughs> At this point, like from the very, let's just say, remember how I told you in the very first part when I started writing that my son was a baby? He's 17 years old right now. He's a senior in high school. <laughs> and, you know, okay, I would say my experience is fairly typical. I started in this group in 2006. We're like a writer's group. We narrowed down so that there's just three of us now. In all of us, it took us like 10 years. We signed with agents with one or two years of each other and now we're all like slowly I sold my book first this other friend I was telling you about just sold her book a few weeks ago our third friend though I mean this is just the crapshoot that this is her book has been out on submission for oh maybe like six months now it's super painful it's really hard now that's not to say that this is the rule because there's all we have all heard the stories and I know people too that the process went a lot quicker for them there's an element of luck in all of this too that if you happen to be in the right place at the right time you sparked something that speaks to a certain cultural moment um you just connected with the right person i've heard countless stories of things that you know just happen they found an agent they sold their book and you hear those stories and i i mean i don't know we would send those emails like can you believe this one she's just only been working on it for two years two years and we all know somebody who had that kind of a story and you know all power to them. I hope that that will be the case for all of you. But I like to show every agonizing, painstaking step because maybe one day, you know, you'll be ready to give up. But if you have this story in your head that that's all part of the process mm-hmm. and that everybody gave up like six or seven times, you know, maybe you stick with it. Come back to it. Try again. But if I came here and only showed you the highlights then I'm afraid I would feed that monster. Mm. <laughs> and when you're having a bad day, uh, you know, they're like, oh, but it was supposed to be easier. Mm. And that really, it's all persistence. We've had so many people that started with us kind of like in the writing community that have just given up because they got beaten down by the rejection. And um, it's just, you just got to outlast the nose. Just got to keep trying, keep standing stuff out there and expect it to be a long curve and then you can be pleasantly surprised but I think the people who expect it to be a shorter curve end up getting really disappointed and really burnt out we have the book it comes out slide one thing that we were talking about is once the book is out in the world too then there's this whole other challenge of owning it and living with it in the world with people i got very very positive critical reviews i didn't get a lot though you know there was little things that you're just kind of waiting like is it going to be reviewed by these major outlets I was panicking. I didn't get one from Publishers Weekly, which seems like one of the most standard ones. Kirkus didn't review it. Mm. The, I was in a panic state the week before my book came out. I thought, oh my God, I'm not going to get any critical reviews at all. You don't even know sometimes. Um, and then it did end up getting reviewed by the Washington Post a week after it came out. It was a really good review. I was very happy for like five minutes. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, it's very easy to tell authors don't read, you know, like your Goodreads reviews or your Amazon reviews. But 
nowadays we have to promote ourselves a lot. So you're constantly on these little sites, updating things, tweaking things. So I just want to show you like the juxtaposition of like the noise you might have to come home and live with, right? So this is like a, one of my negative ones. Oops. I had more of the positive ones, but I had a good handful that were all saying the same thing. And I think that's why it started to rattle me a little bit because I was like, if more than one person is picking up on this spoiled, selfish, unlikable, whiny, I kept seeing this stuff come up. And I started to think, oh my God, is there something there? Was there something technically I should have done on the page? Was there something my editor could have pointed out that I could have prevented this? You know, ultimately the answer is just no. I mean, like this is just what it is to be in this business. This is what it is to write. Mm. People read through themselves first. You cannot change like the interior landscape of a person and how a book and your message is gonna travel through their minds, right? Like I always feel like authors are leaving their readers crumbs and we're hoping that you're gonna pick it up and stitch it together the way we intend. <laughs> Otherwise, we're writing a really heavy-handed book and hitting you over the head with our message. But you cannot control what crumb a reader might pick up and hit a nerve with them and really bother them. As an exercise, just just for myself, I went and I looked up all memoirs by women and I read all their one-star reviews. And they're almost all the same. Like my reviews, their reviews, they could have been verbatim. Oh there's this there's, there's something happening there's a cultural thing about women talking about themselves talking about their lives too much there's a lot of this selfish arrogant self-centered it's so funny because you're writing you know you're picking up a memoir so it is going to be some centered on the self but you know anyway um yeah i don't want you to be human i don't want you to be human yeah pretty much i don't want you to have real you know, women are supposed to be pleasing, nice, whatever, don't have real thoughts. Before we move away from the criti criticism aspect of it, mm -hmm. um, did you get backlash too, or were you afraid of backlash due to like the cultural aspects of it? And that's obviously really, different for people and and the oh that yeah they wanna, you know put oh my at. god i was terrified this book was a secret it was my little secret mm -hmm. i never told anybody what i was doing what i was writing i said i didn't even tell people i was a writer i mean i published things and i would pass it off like oh sometimes I write essays sometimes I write op-eds somebody asked me what I did for a living I pretty much used to say I was a stay-at-home mom because I didn't make a living from this and I felt like and that's the other thing that's always very hard is when do I get to call myself a writer when can I call myself an author many of us will never see the kind of financial um, compensation from doing this work that makes you you know if you're waiting for that you're gonna be you might be waiting for a really long time I was terrified of my family's reaction. I was terrified of my community's reaction. And so one of the pieces of writing advice I got at that Gotham workshop way back in 2003 was right with the door closed. And I took that to heart and I thought, I'm only gonna open the door when I'm ready. If I open it too early, I'll get derailed. I'll never be able to finish this. 
I always write, wrote in a community of writers. I always had my writers workshop on the side. They were not connected to my community in any way. They were giving me feedback. I was working with them. But outside, within my family, I was not telling people what I was doing, especially once I decided I was going to segue into this love and relationship story. I mean... My husband is a very, very private person. Like, the very first thing he does when he comes home is close all the blinds. <laughs> he has no social media. Like, that's how much he just does not want anybody knowing anything about him ever. <laughs> and here I go, and I do this thing, right? And and I have to tell him. I have to tell him that I, I've done this thing and I, I decided he was going to be the only person I was going to tell because I rationalized to myself if my parents wanted to disown me or my in-laws wanted to get really upset or my siblings wanted to get upset I could live it wasn't like I was going to lose the roof over the head of the father of my children right <laughs> so I was just going to deal with him and and I sat him down and I said look you know there's these issues in our community one is this whole prejudice in stereotypes and the racism issue. And I feel like a really human book about a Muslim couple could do a lot of good in the world. Mm -hmm. The other thing I told him was our community itself needed representation of a love story because we didn't have anything that looked like us. I'd never seen a couple who'd been kind of set up or match made in any kind of media and in a book. And as a young woman in my 20s, I would have given anything to have read a book like this, just have made that experience normal and okay. And he could he could see the logic in doing something like that. It did not make him comfortable. Mm -hmm. I mean, so he read it. I gave him ultimate veto power. If there was any scenes he didn't want in there, um, I did this before I queried. I felt like it wasn't right to send it out into the world and make it possibly be a real thing without his permission. Changed his name. That was something he asked me to do. But otherwise, he get, kind of gave me his tacit blessing. And I think he thought that I would never actually get it published. <laughs> <laughs> I had been writing for so long. I had been struggling for so long. He was like, all right, let's see what happens. And you guys have to realize, I mean, this went out for years. Yeah. And I think, I think he was feeling really good about it never <laughs> seeing the light of day. And, um, but now I has. And um, my worst nightmares have not come true at all. Everybody in my family has risen to the occasion. My husband, I thought he was going to hide me the book and hide it from the people as work. He invited all his coworkers to my first book event. Um, he usually sits in the corner, like tearing up. And I mean, he's just like my biggest cheerleader and his parents are there. They buy it. They pass it out to people. And this is the thing is you have to realize there's like a legitimacy of a book, right? I think we authors get really caught up in our fear, our own fear story and we assign our fear story to different characters in our lives. It's it's unfounded sometimes. Sometimes we think the worst of people and they would really just be proud of you for what you've accomplished and um you know, they can and, and that's the other thing too is especially from coming from an immigrant community, we assume that um 
our people don't have stories or something because we grew up surrounded by the stories around us. We're not immersed in our own communities, stories, culture, and their own language. And we think, oh, they don't understand. And that was like the most arrogant, stupid assumption I carried with me all these years. Of course they understand. Of course they've read, you know, they understand the concept of a book, of a movie, of a story, and why we tell stories and why we include certain information. And 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 my mother-in-law put me to shame because I was so worried that, you know, she, she's... Um, I mean, she definitely speaks English, but she speaks it with a kind of a, more of an accent. She doesn't work outside the home. I thought she wasn't going to get what I was doing. And she was just like, this is art, you know? And I was like, oh, really? Like, and I said, but people might talk. And she said, let them talk. I know how to answer them. And um, yeah, my family has been really, really supportive. And my Arab community has been so supportive. I have also been ashamed of the things that I assumed that they would disapprove and that they would not encourage me, not support it. They've all turned up at my events and pretty much um, told me, like, why did you keep it a secret for so long? These are our stories. These are our children's stories. It helps us understand them better. It's done a lot even for my own understanding of myself was just to see their response. How so? We fall into our, the stereotypes of people have of us and internalize them in a lot of ways. And I, I didn't realize how much I had internalized it. And, and, it's, and it didn't hold up to be true. You know, they are just as interested in wanting to consume books and art and, and to, to understand. And, and nobody was getting hung up on the taboos as much as I was getting hung up on my own personal shame for having shared it. I thought there was going to be more of a criticism and shame for, oh, why did you expose so much of your personal life? Mm. No one, not one person has brought that up. If, on the contrary, they've come to me and said more things like, that was so brave of you, so helpful. I related to that. One thing that we talked about a lot and thought was really interesting is your, your memories are so vivid and so detailed. And so we kind of wondered, how, how are you able to bring that back and able to make it feel like you were just like right there? Were you able, did you use a little bit of freedom there or do you just have an incredible memory? <laughs> um, you know, we do. You can, there's a lot of ways you can research your own life. You know, you end up just treating yourself like a project. So I kept diaries and journals. I reread every email I had sent from like whatever oh year gosh. to whatever. And it was extremely, extremely um, informative because there were things that I thought I knew and understood or ideas and attitudes that I had when I went back in time and realized, oh, no, you know, I, you know, the resist like certain places where I maybe felt like I might have had less agency about choosing to get married. When I look back on my old emails, I was like, no, I was all into this. (laughs) You know, I was shopping, buying stuff. And then I had to really revise the manuscript to reflect that and then I looked at old pictures so like if you're seeing like a detail of a color or something I was wearing I was like looking at a picture and writing right off the picture (laughs) watched my old wedding video took notes of what everybody was wearing the music that was playing you know we leave kind of a footprint of our life and you can dig up a lot 
more. But yes, where there's a big blank, you do sometimes make stuff up. You make it up. (laughs) The, the, The key thing with memoir is you're trying to maintain the emotional truth. That's all, that's your real homework. That's what you're trying to do. We're just trying to create a picture for you, the reader, uh, as a way to share that emotional truth. I mentioned I'm usually a fiction writer, but I have taken a life writing class. It's my like, <coughs> my things into life writing. Um, and I found it like a very cathartic process mm-hmm. as well as like really difficult. Um, and I was just wondering like, did you find it really cathartic to write about your life in this way and really like ob- observe and reflect? Or did you learn anything about yourself? And- this is this whole like uh, point of contention with memoirists, right? Because we get asked a lot, like, was it like therapeutic? Was it cathartic? And I think a lot of us feel like if we wanted therapy, we would go to therapy, right? Mm-hmm. Like I wouldn't have sat there and honed it and edited it down for the sake of catharsis like the the exercise of the memoir and it's the in the offering like we are telling it to you because we think the reader is going to pull something away from this as a benefit i think most memoirs feel like it's an act of sacrifice like i'm sacrificing my privacy and i'm sharing it with you so that i can illuminate something about the human experience But do we discover stuff along the way? Absolutely. And I feel like it's not necessarily like that it's therapeutic, but it's like this process of unraveling, this process of discovery, of possibility, that it's very exciting because I move through my life feeling like nothing that ever happens to me is real or true because it's just how I've filtered it and told a story about it. And so it leaves so much room for possibility in all of your interactions that maybe you've misunderstood something, maybe that you know, person in your life didn't mean it that way. And they're coming from from a different place in their story. And I love the memoir mindset. Absolutely. My understanding of that time period of my life was enhanced, enriched, and made better for having done this book. My relationship, I mean, like I was excavating this relationship with my spouse and enforcing myself to step into his shoes to write him decently in the story I softened in my understanding of him too like I had made him kind of the antagonist like you're the one I had to marry and we had all these struggles and then I it forced me to see like oh my god you were just a 23 year old kid too and uh and you know and you had your story and you had your hopes of what your ideal wife would be and i was not those things and you were not those things for me and 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 then you realize that every person in your life it's almost like you treat them like you would treat them in a character in fiction like you get to reinvent them you get to create them but you also have to do it like a fiction writer would do with a lot, a lot of love. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts and now on Spotify so that you don't miss an episode. Check out the website at VoicesOfSantaClara.com for some shortened transcripts. And you can like the Facebook page and follow on Twitter. I'll see you next time.